0: This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Spirit as Sculptor of the Human Organism, Collected Works, Volume 28, translated by Matthew Barton. This is Lecture 2, given in Stuttgart on the 14th of October 1922. Last time I spoke to you of a realm of unconscious experience, that is, of things that remain hidden to ordinary consciousness in the form it exists today. I spoke about sleep, trying to describe to you in some detail what the human soul experiences between falling asleep and waking up again. Since what the soul experiences at night involves experiences in the world of spirit, as you will have seen, it may have been apparent to you that these human soul experiences are clear manifestations of the soul's eternal Unfading existence. You know, of course, that insight into such supersensible experiences can be gained by means I have often described to you verbally here, as well as in my books titled Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, titled Occult Science, also known as Esoteric Science, and so forth. And you also know that the kind of knowledge available to ordinary human consciousness can be developed into faculties of imagination, inspiration and intuition. Unconscious experiences that the soul has during sleep are in a sense illumined by the power acquired by the perceiving human soul if it develops these faculties. The same path of development, however, also enables us to some degree to study an aspect of unconscious human experience, of which sleep is only a reflection or image, that aspect of experience from which the human soul departs when it enters physical earth existence at birth or, let us say, at conception, and which it enters again when it removes itself from physical existence on earth at death. Today I will offer some intimations, at least, of what underlies the events of birth or conception, and death, as far as the life of the human spirit and soul is concerned. When we develop the faculty of imaginative cognition, which I will not describe again here since I have often done this, and also shown how it can be developed, the first thing we encounter is our physical life on earth, lying spread out before us in a single great tableau. In ordinary physical consciousness, our earthly life only exists in our soul as memory. What is this memory? It consists of pictures, albeit ones which by their very nature point to experiences we have undergone since birth, or since a point in time somewhat after our birth. Yet our ordinary mode of knowledge today, cannot regard these pictures as developing an existence independent of the body. Modern scientists are quite correct in saying that these memory pictures are dependent on the physical body's constitution. They are right to suggest that such memory is not present in early infancy, but gradually develops along with the physical organism, and fades again too when our human physical organism approaches the evening of its days. Likewise in post-mortem examinations, in the case of certain diseases, they can study how memory loss is caused by certain disorders of the physical organism. Science has no final answers in this field as yet, but if we study the relevant results of physically based research, we can see that it will eventually be possible to demonstrate that ordinary memory pictures are bound to the physical human organism. These memories of our life, however, separate memory pictures we can look back on as we stand within the current of our experience, are not what is meant when we speak of how the faculty of imagination perceives the great tableau of our life spread out before us, insofar as this life is soul-spiritual in nature. What we perceive here by imaginative cognition is very far from the abstract memory pictures stored in ordinary memory. The faculty of imagination experiences instead an active, organic life that is not passive like memory pictures, but has an inner vigor like the forces of growth that work in our organism when, in assimilating external substances as food, we transform them in a wonderful way into what we need to constitute our organism. What lives and works in us creatively in this process is different from what exists in a more passive way in mere memory pictures. Consider thoughts which illumine our awareness. Certainly we owe an infinite amount to the thinking capacity we develop in earthly existence and only become human, really and fully aware of our human dignity by virtue of this. Yet these are only fleeting images bound to our physical organism as the flame is to the candle wax. When, by contrast, we use imaginative cognition to perceive the soul's spiritual life underlying physical existence on earth and see a wondrous tableau unfolding before us There is nothing passive about this, but it is inwardly alive. Spreading before us as qualities of soul and spirit, our direct vision of soul shows it to be, nevertheless, as real as an object of the outer world which our eyes perceive as red. In imaginative cognition we can say that we now not only possess thoughts that flare up in our awareness, but in fact become conscious of the very powers at work within our organism. I was taken to task severely for once writing what was thought an absurd notion in my little book titled The Spiritual Guidance of Mankind and Humanity. There I stated that all the adult's wisdom accomplishes less than the wisdom of the small child, though this wisdom lives in him unconsciously. Simply look, with the most scholarly and educated human knowledge, at a human brain or the whole human organism in the first years of childhood, and discern how the infant first inwardly configures himself. Even the work of the most brilliant sculptor pales into insignificance compared to the vigorous sculptural activity accomplished by the child's powers of soul and spirit as he shapes and forms his brain. If we reflect on this and understand it, we gain real insight into the wisdom that holds sway here, a vigorous wisdom rather than one stored away in the human head for explaining the world, a wisdom that contains an organism of soul-spiritual powers which hour by hour really continue to penetrate the child's outer organism so as to make him fully human. Just try for a moment to hold in your mind a fleeting picture of what is at work there, in such majestic wisdom that our reason and intellectual wisdom is left far behind, of what is at work here in the child, and must work for long years out of the unconscious. Think, for instance, of the wondrous edifice of human language incorporated into the child. Try to form an image, albeit only an abstract one, of this active wisdom up to the point when we become sufficiently conscious of ourselves to make use of our reason and intellect, at which point one can say our reason creates an ephemeral wisdom in imitation of that greater wisdom which has first formed us out of inmost universal potencies. But we must also realize that at the same time as we develop human intellectual reason in what I would call the upper stratum of our being, what worked as a wonderful sculptor in us during childhood and elaborated our organism continues to hold sway in the lower strata of our human nature. And this founding system, this organism of powers is what imaginative perception surveys in a whole unified tableau. Our imaginative faculty, therefore, does not see abstract memory pictures before it, which cannot be said to remain once the organism decays into its constituents, since they are bound to the organism. But instead it perceives the system of powers that built up this organism and are therefore not bound to it. They are bound to it as little as the creative brilliance of the sculptor is bound to the material he shapes for the sculptor's material to become what it does it must first be shaped by his configuring energy for us to form the physical organism we possess in earth existence these extra telluric supersensible powers must underlie our physical life as soul spiritual organization This is the first perception we acquire when we rise to imaginative cognition. The moment we are able to perceive what works in us as spirit and soul during our life on earth, and is not merely dependent on the physical organism, but rather configures and shapes it, we also become able to look away from our earthly existence, to abstract from it to use a rational expression, in the same way that we can abstract or extrapolate from a thought in ordinary life. Through meditative exercises I have often described, we have to attain the power not just to look away from a thought or image, not just suppress it, but to root out what we have first energetically acquired in our perception of the soul and spirit working upon earthly existence. Root out this tableau of thoughts from our consciousness. As soon as we become able, in what I would call a perceiving selflessness, a perceiving altruism, to root out also from our inner vision what we ourselves are as soul and spirit during earthly life, then our truly eternal soul-spiritual nature appears before our awareness. In fact, what we were before we descended from soul-spiritual worlds into physical life appears before our awareness as actual soul-spiritual being. We learn to look upon ourselves as human soul-spiritual entelechy in pre-birth existence learn to speak of this pre-earthly existence not just in general abstract phrases, but to perceive its development. And some aspects of this development are what I wish to speak of today. Here in our earthly life, we feel ourselves connected with our physical body, or at least we do during waking life. However dim a sense of connection it is, this does exist and we become especially aware of it when something in our physical body is not working properly if we fall ill in some way in this case we not only feel the physical body as a dim generalized experience of being alive but also sense its separate parts depending on the disorder we get a stronger sense say of our lungs stomach heart or head ordinarily This is all submerged in a vague sense of being alive. But if ever our state of health is compromised, we have an opportunity to become more aware of distinct organs. In waking consciousness between birth and death, we sense ourselves within our being as belonging to our physical body, to everything enclosed within our skin. But the moment we are not bound up with the physical body in this way, when we experience our soul-spiritual existence before we entered upon physical existence on earth, then we no longer have the self-evident sense of an interior composed of our physical body or its limbs. Nevertheless, we still have a sense of interiority. I described in the first lecture how the soul experiences inner pictures during sleep even though it remains unconscious of them. But in the condition in which the soul dwelt before it descended from soul's spiritual existence into physical life on earth, it was aware of a different kind of interior life. This awareness of a different interiority is merely concealed, veiled by the fact that in physical life our body also becomes an organ of perception obscuring soul perception that can only exist in so far as the soul is free of the body in this latter condition what the soul experiences as its interior life is now not what is enclosed within our physical skin but instead the configuration of the cosmos just as we are bound up in our physical existence with our lungs, stomach, heart, and other bodily organs, so in supersensible existence we are bound up with what otherwise appears to us, to our eyes and other sense organs, as the external world of the cosmos. What we perceive as outer world around us during earthly existence becomes our inner world when we dwell in extra telluric existence. And then from this supersensible realm between death and a new birth, we look upon earthly life as an external world. In the same way that we dwell in the flesh, if you like, of our lungs, heart, and so forth, so we are incorporated, before we descend to physical life on earth, in the planetary movements, the fixed star constellations, the powers that actively infuse the cosmos all of which later appear to us as outer reflection, as the wide universe around us when we once more live on earth. There is no need to be misled by the idea that the external world is anyway a single world for people on earth dwelling in separate bodies. The truly significant thing is that we have one world together when we live in extra-telluric existence and that the world possessed by one person is the same there as that possessed by another. Here, in life on earth, we are spatially separate because each of us is enclosed within our skin, whereas, after death, we maintain our distinct existence through inner strength of soul. In extra existence, each person is an individual too, but is then separated not by space, but by inner cohering powers of soul. Yet into these cohering powers flows something that spiritually corresponds to the universe we see surrounding us in the physical reflections of the sun, moon, planets and fixed stars. Here in earthly life we look at another person, and see only the form of his face, the light in his eyes, the movements of his body. And yet, since we ourselves are also beings of soul and spirit, it dawns on us that a soul and spirit are alive in these forms of his face, his gaze, the pink of his skin and his movements. In the same way, someone able to look upon the soul and spirit of the world will see that modern astronomy is incorrect, in its view of the sun and moon, the fixed stars, the planets and their movements, as being only physical phenomena. Such a view is really the same as saying that the movements of our facial muscles, say, or of our eyelashes, are merely external shifts of position and not the expression of sentience and spirit. If we can see the soul and spirit in the world, we will recognize that the movements of sun and moon are as much the expression of a physiognomy of soul and spirit as are a person's facial expressions. The movements of the planets are likewise expressions of soul-spiritual occurrences in the same way that impulses of soul and spirit become manifest in our limbs and bodily movements. As supersensible beings, before we descend into earthly existence, we live in these soul-spiritual foundations of what appears to us in the physical reflection of our outer physical sun, the outer physical moon, the stars and their motions. We live in this soul and spirit in the cosmos that corresponds to each individual person's soul and spirit. As a person living on earth, I know that lungs and heart are alive inside me. And as a super-telluric human being, Before I have descended into the physical sensory world, in order to configure my physical body, I know that the sun and moon live within me, although not as a sensory earthly reflection of sun and moon, but rather their underlying reality of spirit and soul. The whole divine spiritual world works through me and lives within me, while my human existence is still in a super-earthly sphere. To understand this gives us a deep reverence for the reality of the whole life of the universe with which we are interwoven. For then we gain insight into the wonderful interconnections between the human being and the cosmos. In considering the human being as we stand here in physical earthly existence, We come to see that the confines of our skin enclose not only what can be physically discerned and what the anatomist can dissect and diagnose after death, but also the ultimate goal of all cosmic life. The marvelous saying of primordial religions that we are made in the image of God Himself acquires a new infinitely resonant meaning. And knowledge gained through the faculty of inspiration teaches us to see what we actually experience in pre-earthly existence in relation to the divine spiritual powers on which the whole cosmos is founded. In considering only earthly human life, we speak first of the human embryo, which develops in the womb, and then after birth into the form of the growing child, Naturally, the embryo is seen here as something small that gradually increases in size. In our pre-earthly existence, we also live in a kind of embryo or germinal state. But this embryo involves an experience of the whole cosmos of soul and spirit. Here we have, in a sense, become one with the soul-spiritual cosmos. Divine spiritual powers indwell us, live and work within us, permeate us, and configure in us the grandeur of a spirit germ that contains in itself the powers that must pass through spiritual existence until the time of birth or conception so that they can emerge again in earthly life when, as its outer sculptor, we need to shape and elaborate our own physical organism. If we grasp this, we become aware of the miraculous nature of this physical organism. For as the goal of the cosmic germ of our inner life, we can experience its immeasurable grandeur through fully conscious soul-spiritual vision. We acquire our physical embryo from the physical world, but our spiritual germ comes to us from the spiritual world. Before we descended to physical earth existence, We were, you can say, a soul-spiritual embryo poured out into the whole world, which subsequently united with the physical embryo that receives us as we come down into earth existence. Through the faculty of inspiration, we can gain insight into our pre-earthly cosmic existence. Just as we know ourselves to be one with our physical organism, here this further insight shows us to be one with the whole world. Here, in this world, we look upon the external manifestations of spirit within nature and in human life and have an intimation of the divine spirit behind these sensory phenomena. In pre-earthly existence, we are imbued, infused and interwoven with this divine spiritual existence and, as it lives within us, it implants in us the powers that draw us toward physical existence on earth. Just as we raise our eyes here to the wonderful star-strewn heavens, so in gazing from extra-telluric existence, we look upon the wondrous edifice of the physical human being living on earth. Let's put it like this. We look up from the earth to the heavens in our physical existence on earth, but gaze from the heavens to the earth in our pre-earthly existence. And then we can grasp the earth as it ought really to live within us, as the work of the gods. All this is immediate experience initially in our pre-earthly life. But once we have passed through this pre-earthly existence, divine spiritual beings withdraw from us human beings at a certain point. As yet there is no natural world around us. And in this soul-spiritual existence we do not yet have physical eyes or physical organs and therefore would anyway be unable to see a natural world. Around us still is something like a shimmer of Divine Spirit. This is a decisive turning point in our pre-earthly life. First we experience ourselves as immediately rooted in divine spiritual existence, as pervaded by it. And then comes a moment when, although our eyes of spirit still gaze on a world of spirit around us, we no longer live with divine beings, but instead they reveal themselves to us, are apparent to us through their deeds. This manifestation of spirit and soul is only a reflection of what we ourselves previously experienced. In other words, we leave the sphere of direct experience for one of manifestation or appearance. And, gradually, as we enter this realm of manifestation, we realize that divine spiritual beings have withdrawn from our immediate experience and now we can only perceive their appearance. They are still there for us, certainly, but only as perceived by our eyes of spirit and soul. At this moment of our pre-earthly soul-spiritual existence, there awakens in us something I can only compare with the desire living in our physical organism. We are inwardly infused with a growing desire as the pre-birth world around us becomes appearance rather than direct experience. Only now, really, do we feel a sense of self distinct from our surroundings. We depart from cosmic experience and from an experience of our own human nature, which as cosmic and not just human beings, we possessed for a period of life between death and new birth, during which universal consciousness and a consciousness of humanity were one for us now this universal awareness and awareness of our human nature start to sunder so that we no longer experience the world directly but only manifesting at one remove as a separate interior life emerges in us previously our inner life was one with the world but now an interior experience forms that is separate from our surroundings, and this first manifests as an inner desire, a wish, a will. A wishing, a will, a desire, always has a focus or object. This wishing, will, and desire homes in on our future life on earth, which we will descend to again after a while. We are filled by visions of our future life on earth, and with this we absorb powers that then become unconscious when we pass through fetal development in the womb. First, we possess these visions consciously, but this consciousness is increasingly dulled. And a point arises when our desire grows strong, and when even the manifestation of the divine spiritual world in which we were previously alive and active grows ever darker, the world of spirit around us becomes ever more shadowy. What previously shone brightly in effulgence of divine revelation grows darker and more shadowy. As these outer spiritual surroundings grow obscured, the inner powers of desire become all the stronger and more insistent. The surroundings of our spiritual existence darken while our interior world, becomes more vigorous. And after some time this vigorous inner world of ours deprives us completely of an awareness of our future life on earth. For a period not long preceding earthly conception, our view of earthly existence is darkened and obscured, whereas before we were able to gaze upon it as the vivid goal, the majestic cosmic tableau within which we were living. Now, though, our view of the earth vanishes and is replaced instead by a different sight. Not long before we descend to the earth, we lose our vision of the earth and instead gain vision of the etheric world. Our gaze opens to etheric phenomena that conceal light within them and life forces. Everything spread out in space but working not centrifugally but from the earth up into space, but as it were, centripetally from the world's periphery to the earth, the etheric pouring into the earth. An etheric world becomes spiritually visible around us, as if in a great cosmic mist, within which the most diverse forms can be seen. And from this etheric world, with the power we still possess, that of desire, We can draw our own ether body from the universal etheric, the cosmic mist. We can form it, and in doing so we configure with this etheric body a reflection of what we once were previously in the soul-spiritual world. We incorporate this ether body into what we meet coming toward us as genetic inheritance, the physical substantiality with which our forefathers endow us, and we descend to earthly existence. I have only briefly outlined what we perceive by the faculties of imagination and inspiration when we enlarge our awareness beyond the confines of ordinary earthly consciousness. During earth evolution, as we progressed to the state of consciousness we possess today, which is strictly bound up with physical corporeality, we lost our original state of awareness, as I have often stated. I have pointed out that history really only describes the outward aspects of humanity's life on earth, and that we also need a soul history, which would show that we have not always had our modern state of consciousness. Today, People use the rational mind alone to create a synthesis of what their sensory organs perceive and can only raise to their awareness what rises from their physical nature. The further back we trace past eras of humanity, the more we see that people once had a kind of primordial clairvoyance, albeit dreamlike in nature. What we can today acquire by the faculties of imagination and inspiration is a fully conscious perception, really just as conscious as mathematical thinking. In a former time, people had only a dull, dreamlike awareness, although it was one imbued with wisdom. These people of a former era not only sensed what modern human beings experience when they reflect upon themselves but also had a clairvoyant feeling of what I described to you yesterday. If We return to the most ancient Egyptian era, and still further back to times of which no historical records are extant, of which only the kind of history I presented in my title Occult Science, also known as Esoteric Science, can tell us we discover human beings who could gaze upon their pre-earthly existence without the need for exercises such as i have often described to you they could do so because something like a memory of this pre-earthly existence still lived in their souls today people have acquired their freedom at the expense of having only a faculty of memory in the form of abstract thoughts of events and experiences During their earthly life, in primordial times, human beings could gaze into their souls and draw from within not only such memories of their current physical life, but also soul pictures of what I have described. Today we can recall by our ordinary faculties what we experienced twenty or thirty years ago, and in the same way a person of more ancient times could in a sense recall what he had experienced in pre earthly existence, and what I have presented to you today as the findings of spiritual science. In those ancient times, a person was as certain of his pre earthly existence as you are certain that you were not born yesterday, and had this certainty by virtue of what he experienced within his soul. This gave him the assurance that the intrinsic nature of his soul experience already existed in a soul-spiritual world before he descended to physical earthly existence, and that this entelechy passes through the portal of death and is independent of the physical organism, both building up the physical organism for earthly existence and entering a continued existence after passing over the threshold of death, But what is it exactly that continues on after physical existence on earth? The thoughts we experience here on earth are bound up with the physical organism. By contrast, the expressions of will that spring up so wonderfully from within us in a way we can only grasp in thoughts and ideas are all deeply unconscious for the soul like the events of sleep themselves. We know we wish to lift a hand or an arm, but have no idea what actually occurs between between the motivating thought and the actual lifting of an arm, in this whole intermediate miracle leading to the tensing of a muscle. The will that rises in us remains largely unconscious, or in other words, is only reflected in our conscious mind. But if we study this life of will through the faculties of inspiration and intuition, we can make huge discoveries. In physical earthly existence, as considered only from an external perspective, we perform actions which a materialistic age sees fit to believe are fully contained within this physical realm and have no further significance beyond it. But if we can look down into the true will nature of the human being, which remains unconscious to the ordinary waking mind, we find as we progress through our earthly existence something taking shape that is composed of an evaluation of our actions, and this does not arise from thinking but from will. In the physical realm we say that an action is good or bad, that we are satisfied or dissatisfied with it. We might believe that this is only an abstract judgment, which we add to the action. When we use true faculties of inspiration and intuition to gaze into the nature of the human will, we see that what is here only a thought, there, becomes an actual being. We see how our evaluation of satisfaction or dissatisfaction with an action inwardly becomes a reality of the will, and how a whole being takes shape in the depths of our human nature. The countenance of this being, if I may put it like this, depends on the nature of our actions here in earthly existence. If we have done bad deeds, which a fully developed human conscience cannot be happy with, a being ugly in countenance develops within us. Whereas if we have done deeds we can be satisfied with, a being with a sympathetic countenance emerges. So you see, the evaluation of our actions gives rise to an inner being in us, when we are children, our thoughts are still working to shape our physical organism, after which they become abstract. And as our thoughts increasingly become dependent on the physical organism, because if you like a kind of... read that again. And as our thoughts increasingly increasingly become dependent on the physical organism, become, if you like, a kind of corpse in our physical organism for they are not alive, they are dead thoughts. So at the same time our moral nature stirs below in the unconscious and we elaborate this ourselves during our lifetime. This moral being exists and unites with our I-being and it is this moral being that we then bear with us over the threshold of death when we enter the world of spirit. As we cross the threshold of death, and emerge into the world of spirit. You will find an account of this in my book titled Theosophy. We have laid aside our physical body and dwell in our etheric body, still retaining there an awareness of our earthly deeds. But this awareness starts to be infused with cosmic universal awareness. The etheric body resolves into the general world ether, Just as we gather it together before birth, so now it dissolves in the world ether. What I call the astral body in my book titled Theosophy is what we gradually live our way back into the cosmos with, at the same time united with our newly formed moral and spiritual organism. It is this we initially bear out with us as we find our way back into the cosmos. And now a task arises for us, connected with what I said about human sleep in our last lecture. I spoke of how we have the strength during sleep to re-enter our physical organism by virtue of what we can call moon forces. These moon forces are what bring us back into physical earth existence and do so each and every morning. We find ourselves within this sphere of moon forces after we have laid aside our physical and etheric bodies. But that encompassing universal consciousness I described to you cannot be acquired within these moon forces, since here, through this moral earth organism, we have something that still ties us to the earth. We have to detach ourselves from the moon forces, leaving behind, in the moon sphere, What we ourselves have woven into being from the moral quality of our actions, from all that we ourselves accomplished as moral or immoral actions, we have to leave this behind in the moon-sphere and penetrate further into the sun-sphere, the world of stars. Now we must not only enter the reflection of it, as I described in relation to sleep, but the real world of sun and stars as we detach ourselves from the moon-sphere. Primordial humankind also had a clairvoyant awareness of this and could speak of things we can only discover today by developing our powers of soul and spirit. Primordial human beings could speak of these things through the natural elemental powers innate in them. But they were at the same time always guided by the teachings that issued from the mysteries as we are guided today by science, by various educational establishments, which, of course, did not exist in more ancient times. The perception of life before birth and after death was in a sense governed by the higher knowledge of initiates of the mysteries. The latter knew by inner experience that the human being cannot release himself from the moon sphere after death by his own powers, and they passed this insight on to the rest of primordial humanity. The initiates knew that a spiritual being must come from the cosmos to meet the human soul, and that the sun is the outward physical reflection of this being. This being had to come to meet them, had to draw them away from the moon sphere. They had to leave behind what they bore with them as guilt from their sojourn on earth and were then led up into the guilt-free sphere of the cosmos by what all ancient initiates called the Great Sun Being, which was marvelously described in all the ancient mysteries. In those days people were told that they needed the strength that comes that came toward them from the heavens. But at that time... People had a very different organization, as I have said, and possessed inner clairvoyant powers. While on earth they still knew from inner vision that there was a supersensible world, they really had no fear of death, for what was death? An experience in life and part of it. And they saw that they possessed something within them that was untouched by death, something in their body. And because it dwelt in their body, they could see how the sun being came toward them, whose help they could welcome after death. Implicit in the earthly advance of humanity is the fact that human beings have lost perception of their external nature. Humankind has acquired an intellectual mind completely bound up with the physical body and dependent on it. Our earthly consciousness depends on the way our physical body is organized. And this earthly consciousness obscures our vision of the world of spirit, even before we are born and also after we die. Unlike primordial humankind or even people in ancient Egypt, it is not the case today that we bring a certain light with us when we cross the threshold of death to illumine the surrounding space if I can put this metaphorically, of the supersensible world, or rush headlong toward the lofty sun-being who comes to lead us away from the moon-sphere. Back in those times they possessed something within them, between birth and death, that enabled them to perceive this sublime sun-being. There is no need to feel awkward about this expression. Based on their insights, the ancient initiates inevitably called this being the sublime sun being. But a time came in humanity's evolution when people would have lost the capacity to penetrate worlds after death, that they must penetrate if they do not wish to lose themselves. On the other hand, humanity had to advance to the only kind of consciousness in which one can acquire human freedom. This would have meant humanity falling into a terrible condition at a certain point, a complete separation from the supersensible world. The perfection they acquire here on earth, that predestines them for freedom, would have led to their loss of the world of spirit. They would have been unable to find a connection with the spiritual being who draws them away and releases them from what connects them with the earth in their life after death. What, therefore, came to sustain humanity's further true evolution? No abstract knowledge or theoretical doctrine could help here, but only that same being who had formerly dwelt in supersensible worlds and came to meet human beings in the supersensible realm between death and birth. The only thing that could help us was for this being to descend to the earth so that human beings can find a connection with him while still on earth. And this descent is the event of Golgotha, the Christ being descended and took earthly existence upon himself in Jesus of Nazareth. In our earthly life we gain a connection with Christ Jesus. Enhancing our earthly consciousness by looking toward Christ Jesus and feeling sympathy and compassion in relation to the mystery of Golgotha, awareness flows into our earthly consciousness that we are not just an capital I that can be free. We can fill ourselves with the Pauline saying, Not I, but Christ in me, and make this a truth here in earthly life. The I we acquire here. Would otherwise constrict us and separate us from the supersensible world. But when this earthly consciousness connects us with what entered earth existence through the Christ being sacrificed, we can bear this I through death. The capacity we formerly had only by virtue of possessing elementary powers is something we are now endowed with since the mystery of Golgotha by the connection of our mind and soul as earthly human beings with the Christ, with the mystery of Golgotha, which safeguards our life as we pass through the portal of death. You see, the consciousness we acquire through the physical body would inevitably be lost again when we relinquish this body, and we would not find our way through worlds of spirit. But if on earth we find our guide, the Christ, who passed through the mystery of Golgotha, and if we have joined our earthly humanity with his spiritual strength in accordance with the Pauline saying, Not I, but Christ in me, then we come living through the portal of death. We can therefore give full seriousness to another Pauline saying that if Christ had not come to earth, or in other words overcome death, Human beings would gain no help from all their faith. The ancient initiates told people that a super-earthly being would connect with the consciousness that they possessed here by virtue of their whole human nature and would lead them away from moon existence into the pure, universal existence of the cosmos. Modern initiates must say, instead... Consider what occurred through Christ at the mystery of Golgotha, and take up into your consciousness the substantiality of Christ with all its power. This will pass with you through death and lead you toward the worlds that you must traverse between death and a new birth. In the moon sphere you will leave behind your moral being and only rediscover it when you return there, and your earthly destiny will be a reflection of what you left behind in the moon sphere, and then rediscover there. The things I am telling you have only been available to naturally endowed human inquiry through powers that humanity developed since the last third of the nineteenth century. Previously these powers were more or less obscured. They existed in the ancient times I described, but then in a dreamlike way. In the early Christian centuries, people did not possess what we can achieve today through imagination, inspiration and intuition, but they had a natural atavistic clairvoyance, and there were still old initiates living at the time of the mystery of Golgotha. They told the people who trusted in them that Christ, who was present in the world, they recalled as the period of their pre-earthly existence, and formerly dwelt only in spheres beyond the earth, had descended to earth through the cross of Golgotha. This is why in the first four centuries of the Christian era, in the West also, people very largely focused on the Christ who descended to earth. Everywhere you find that accounts from the early Christian centuries, all, almost all of which were destroyed, described how the Christ came down to earth from cosmic worlds of spirit and took on earthly life in the body of Jesus of Nazareth. Very great emphasis was placed in those days on this descent to the earth. But when the old initiates started to die out in the 4th century A.D., before the advent of a new initiation science that would appear only in the last third of the 19th century, The lack of any direct perception obliged religious authors to set down what they received by way of tradition and to pass it on. To acquire freedom in their consciousness, humankind needed to forget the old initiation science for a period. As the nineteenth century approached, therefore, Humanity increasingly forgot about the descent to earthly existence of the super earthly Christ being and his encompassing of this existence in the body of Jesus of Nazareth. In the end, the historical events were all that remained, so that Jesus increasingly came to overshadow Christ in people's awareness. Christ was no longer seen as a supersensible being. Today we must learn anew. To speak of the Christ as a supersensible being, understanding what it means that Christ sustains the life of the human soul. The body, you see, has altered during humanity's evolution. Why did ancient people possess a clairvoyant faculty? Because their body was softer and the glands at work in it were more active than ours. Our glands, in particular, have become harder. And as this hardening progresses, as the human body grows harder and glandular activity grows more sluggish, intellectualism is supported by this and increasingly develops. Glandular activity in the human body grows more sluggish, and at the same time this body itself becomes extremely useful to the rational mind. And we must acquire our connection with the world of the spirit all the more through our soul instead. Initiates in the early Christian centuries still knew all this, but expressed it with a courage nowadays lacking from people's words. They described how people would gradually have become increasingly sick and ailing in body if Christ had not come, and endowed them with soul health. In these early Christian centuries, therefore, Christ was revered not in abstractions, as is our practice today, but, above all, as healer, as the great universal physician, the redeemer. We must relearn and reacquire all these things. But this will only be possible if human beings can gain insight again into the secrets of birth and death. The ability to do so can only be gained on a path of knowledge we develop through faculties of imagination, inspiration, and intuition. Gradually, we must learn of these secrets, for then we will also already acquire perception of them in our souls. The end of Lecture 2